So let's pray, and we'll read Esther chapter 9. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I pray that as we conclude um, the book of Esther, Father, I ask that your spirit would illuminate its meaning, that you would help us, Lord, to, um, to really fully grasp the big picture of what happened here in Esther, this, this book in the Bible um, where you're not mentioned, and yet you're seen so powerfully in the shadows and the silence. So, Father, I pray that as we work our way through the text, we ask that your spirit would illuminate its meaning, that you would guide us, that you would soften our hearts to hear your voice. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Esther chapter 9. <clears throat> now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ashuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples, even all the princes of the provinces and the satraps, the governors and those who were doing the king's business, assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Father, we do thank you for the story. We pray that you would help us now as we work our way through this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, where we ended up last week, we ended, um, Esther had, had finally approached the king. They had the banquet. She laid out what happened. Uh, Haman had been hanged. Um, the situation still uh, remained where, where the edict that was issued that many, many months down the road, uh, this was probably the, the springtime um, is when Passover happened, the first edict went out of the day on, on, it went out on Passover Eve, and so then uh, you know nine months later, six to nine months later this this edict would be um, issued and so Esther said even though Haman was hanged, there was still the situation that that edict was out there it was binding, and the king basically said listen i 've raised Mordecai to the second position i 've given him the signet ring. this is how it works." He can issue any edict he wants. Take care of the situation. You now have that authority. And so they wrote another edict stating that the Jews had authorization to basically group together to, to prepare to defend themselves on that day so that if anybody was to come after them, they had the king's authority to strike back and to protect themselves and the authority to take the plunder of the people. So between chapter 8 and chapter 9, while chapter 6 through 8 is, is one day, a ton of stuff happens in those three chapters. When we move to chapter 9, a number of months has elapsed. And we read now in the 12th month, that is the, the month of Adar, on the 13th day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery of them. It was turned to the contrary 
so that the Jews themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. And so we're sort of introduced. The author lets us know that as, as we turn the page into this chapter, we fast forwarded in time. We now start this chapter on that day when the edict came into effect. And so essentially over this 24-hour window, the Jews, for lack of better terms, that they were open season. Anybody could attack them. Anybody could kill them. Anybody could take and plunder all of their possessions. And it was on the same day that another edict also went into effect that the Jews could protect themselves. This whole story, this whole situation took place in one 24-hour window. And in this first verse, we're told that was meant for evil, suddenly everything turned and it went to the contrary, that the Jews were able to protect themselves and ultimately win victory. Now, we're going to be flying through this passage. We're going to cover a lot of ground. But one of the things in this very first, the very last uh, sentence, what we see here is this word is, is going to surface a number of times. We're going to enter into, a, uh, if this was a movie, this would be a, a very bloody, gory sort of battle scene. But what, what we have to notice is the very last three words in verse 1, who hated them. This phrase will surface. The, the people that were coming after them were people who hated them, who sought their harm, who hated them, like over and over and over again. You would think, I think we step back and think, oh, there's this edict that you can kill all the Jews. If they just create another edict that says, well, they can fight back, you would just think that both sides would calm down. But that's not what happened. Just because the secondary edict was issued, it doesn't mean that the that these the people that wanted to do harm, that it calmed them down at all. And so in verse 2 we read, the Jews assembled in their cities throughout the provinces of King Asherah to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, those who were doing the king's business, assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. So we see that during this time, this however long, seven months, eight months, nine months, I don't know the exact period, but, but in this, this time lapse between chapter eight and chapter nine, Mordecai had really grown into his position of authority. I, it's, it's nothing more than a thought. But it strikes me as funny that his book's named Esther. But as we end Esther, the book really seems to be all about Mordecai. Mordecai, he's just going to keep growing, keep growing when history records him. It's going to be all about this man, Mordecai. But we see that this great fear. And so partway, I think there would be a, a segment of people who, who saw sort of the handwriting on the wall. We better convert over to these people to spare our lives as we see that a number of them did. So in that group of people that converted to Judaism, I think a portion of them, it was more out of a practical sense, but I think that there was probably a bigger chunk of Persians who said, These, this nothing people suddenly rose. This is unheard of. That, that It was all about luck, that when the lot was drawn for this day, this was the day that they were all supposed to be executed. Now when this day arrives, the tables turn. They rise to power. This guy Mordecai has grown greater and greater and greater. Maybe there's something to their God. 
that we need to kind of listen to who this God is. I, I don't know. God's not mentioned here, but I see this sort of that these people sort of turn their hearts. We see this, this, this picture of they hated them, who sought their harm. Mordecai rises. Then we get to verse 5. And it says, thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying and did what they pleased to those who hated them. And I've been thinking about like, at first glance, when I first read through this story, I'm like, man, this is sort of, this is cutthroat. This is, this is harsh. Like this seems like, man, when the Jews went, they went. And it has me in kind of trying to figure out, I, I think it's easy for us to get off track to, that we could miss the situation three times or two, twice we've seen the people who hated them, the people who meant them harm. We truly need to sort of consider this truth. A few years ago, I, I think it was like 10 years ago now, because I, Anne and I were living in La Mesa. Um, I don't, we, we, hadn't, no, we had no kids at the time, and Anna was sick. I think she was sick. Some, there was something that I got the green light that I could go to the library to check out a movie for, for us to watch as a family. That was, those were the conditions. If, if there was somebody sick, then we, I could go rent movies and we could do whatever. And so I've been accused of being a horrible movie selector person. Even at the time, I've been, I was accused then. So I'm like, I'm going to go to the movie theater. I mean, not the movie theater, the library. Because <laughs> I don't go to the library for books. I go for movie. You know, <laughs> like this is... And I'm making fun of myself. It's okay to laugh at me. Because, you know, um, and I'm tired, so my mind is, you know. So I go that I'm looking through all of the movies. And I find one, and I see it. And I'm like, this, is a, this, is a, this looks like a girly movie. This looks good. There's a smiley guy. He looks Italian. It's set in Europe. I, I must not have read the back or the back to say anything. But I see its title, A Beautiful Life. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. It's a, it's a great movie. Like, I bring it home, I plop it in there, and it starts playing. And I have my first, oh, no. <laughs> it's in Italian. So I'm, like, upset. I'm, like, oh. Like, I wanted to get a good girly movie, but let it be in English. Now i got to sit here and read the whole movie? Like, this is, like, backfired on me, so I'm having to read the plot line. But then as the plot's sort of developing, like even through the subtitles, the guy is absolutely hilarious. It, is, it turns out that they filmed the movie right where Susan and Andrea live, and so they're, you know, the La Vita Bella. Like this is the beautiful life in Italian. And, and so I'm watching, I'm like, this guy's really funny. I remember them riding bikes down the hill and flying practical jokes. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's like the... Jews are sort of mentioned. It's set back to pre-World War II. And we, I'm like, uh-oh. I'm like, this is, this is, Anna's like, what movie did you pick? I'm like, it's a girly movie. It's a happy movie. Look at this guy's happy. And then I see the dad like still telling jokes and they come to the store and the, there's the little boy. It's uh, Guido and Joshua's the little boy. And they come to the store with the star and it says no Jews and no dogs. And the, the little boy says, what's up with this? And the dad in his humor says, 
People are strange. We have freedoms. These people, they don't like dogs or Jewish people. The, the guy across the street, he's, they, they don't like Spaniards and elephants. So there's no, no Spaniards, no elephants. If you go across the street, that guy doesn't like Polish people and turtles. So it says no. So he's making this big joke. But for those of us who know history and are watching, we see this. I mean, I get choked up just thinking about this movie. And so it came to my mind this week. And then, and then so last night I'm on YouTube trying to like, find out, like, to, remember, to refresh my mind. And they get taken away to the prison camp. And the German guard busts in speaking German. And he says, who here speaks German? And the dad says, I do. And all his buddies say, you speak German? He's like, of course not. I don't speak German, but this is going to be fun. Because there's a little voice there. And so the German guy's all angry, and he starts giving commands. And as he's talking, the Italian guy's, taking what he's saying, who knows, I don't speak German, so I don't know what exactly he was saying, but I know that what he was translating to the Italians had nothing to do with what he was saying. He says, we're going to play a game over the next few months. (laughs) We're the angry people. (laughs) You're the happy people. There are rules around here. If you complain about being hungry, you lose points. If you have a good attitude, you gain points. And if you start crying for your mamas, you lose points. And so the guy's like, hilarious. The little boy's like giggling. And I, it's powerful, like, to me, it was powerful to see this father who knew the dire situation for his son, but was shielding his son. Even at the end of the movie, I remember when the dad was taken away, he's like waving to his kid. I won the game! I won the game! And the kid's just like, have like this protection of 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 what really happened in the last scene, the boy kind of is coming out, the war had ended, and the Americans come. I mean, it's a tearjerker. And I don't know when our next trip to Israel is, but when we go to Israel, if I'm the leader of the tour, when we go to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust memorial, we don't go quickly. We don't go quickly. You you go in, and you take your time, and you watch the movies, and you... You see the video of them taking uh, front loaders, pushing the bodies into mass graves. The horror, the evil that was done. To cry, to absorb it, to take it in. So when we read here the hatred that they had, the harm that that we need to look at those words at this scale. From Genesis to present day, I don't... Definitely through the Messiah, Israel, like no nation, has been attacked like no other. Evil, horrible things. But when you back up and you realize the spiritualness behind what's going on, that God promised that the Messiah would come through the the, the Jewish people, that the Messiah would come. And ever since, Satan's been trying to devise a plan to destroy the whole Jewish people. Like, who's had all of their two-year-old boys executed? multiple times, to see the Holocaust, to see all of this. And so we read this, verse 5, Thus the Jews struck their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and did what they pleased to those who hated them. It's easy to read this sort of going, man, they seem a little harsh. That seemed a little, not pun intended, a little overkill. Like It seems like they're going like, man, it's, it's like you brought in a nuclear weapon to like smash an ant. 
But when you look at it, and, and, and the, the IDF guys that I've talked to, they're very pr- proud about we have never, init- we've never been on the offensive. All of our strikes are, are defensive. And so I start thinking about it. If you look at history, like even the seven-day war or the six-day war, when they go in, it's like, well, this happened in the cloak of Di- From our appearances, it looks like they made the first strike. But if you really examine how the Jews operate, if they're so outnumbered that, that to not respond means that they were done. And so I look at this, and it's like we have to back up and recognize that the situation and the struggling, the, for me, wrestling through the whole this, this really, this sort of this preemptive strike that they went, and when they did it, I really see more like a, a follow-up of 1 Samuel 15, which we're going to get into. Now, in verse 6 through 10, the story's going to zoom in the, in Susa, the citadel. What was going on in the place, the, the capital city? And so we read in the, the citadel at Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and then 10 very difficult names are listed for sake of speed. I'm going to just... Not read their names, but you can on your own. And then we pick up in verse 10, and we see who are these 10 names. And we learn that these 10 names are the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the the plunder. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. If you mark in your Bible, if you write, I'd highlight that. It's going to come up three times in our passage. This is while it's not mentioned, this, the whole story of Esther goes back to 1 Samuel 15. So if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel 15, hold your place there, and as soon as you can find 1 Samuel 15, continue going backwards to Exodus chapter 17. So you'll come across, as you work towards the front of the Bible, you'll come to 1 Samuel 15. Just find your place there, mark it, and then continue to Exodus. Exodus is right in the front there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So you come to Exodus chapter 17. And at the very end of Exodus 17, verses 14 through 16, we come to the story that, that many of us should know. As Israel, as you're finding a place, I'm just going to get us sort of grounded of where we are in the story. As they're making their way to the promised land, they encounter a problem where they have to go to battle. It's the story where if if they win, so long as Moses' hands were held upright. If his hands dropped, they would lose. So he had two guys, they held his hands up, they won the battle. At the very end of this battle scene, we read in Exodus um, chapter 17, verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. Just that name, Amalek, file that away in your brain because it's very important. I will blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So there's this guy, Amalek. God says, I'm going to blot him out from the face of the earth. From generation to generation, there's going to be war between Israel and, uh, and Amalek. Now, go back to 1 Samuel 15, where I told you to hold your place. I didn't hold my place there to kind of buy, buy you some time. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel is the priest. Saul is the first king. In verse 1 of chapter 15 of Samuel, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. 
Now, therefore, listen to the words of your of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. Remember Amalek back in Exodus for what he did to Israel and how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Then Samuel summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Canaanites, go depart down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag. Okay, Agag is very important. Remember this name. When we go to Esther a few generations later, Haman the Agagite. He's like the great, great, whatever grandson to this king Agag. When we look at Mordecai, the author of Esther tells us that Mordecai is the great, great, great grandson of Saul. They're connected. Or maybe with Samuel. I think it's Saul if my memory is right. Yeah, I got Saul. So he, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. What was he commanded to do? To kill them all. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag against God's instructions. And the best of all the sheep, the auctions, the fattings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, violating God's instructions. But everything was despised. Every but everything that was like despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So if it was like old stuff that you'd sell at a garage sale, we're going to destroy that. If it is the good stuff, yeah, we're not going to destroy that stuff. Like that's valuable. That's a nice new car. It's still got little miles. We're you know. They, they did everything what they weren't supposed to do. And then in verse 11, we read that God says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. If you fast forward, we're going to turn the page. One of, the, one of my favorite passages here is found in 22 when God is, when God is, or Samuel, God through Samuel is confronting Saul and he said, behold, Better to obey is better than to sacrifice. And he's calling out Saul in his leadership that he didn't do what God, that, that obedience is what God wants from us. But so now we get down to verse 32. You think, well, where's the bad blood? Why did Haman hate Mordecai so much? Like, where's the bad blood? Like, it seemed like his great, 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 great grandfather was spared. But then we come to verse 32 and we see like, Never been asked to do this as a pastor. I hope I never do, but this is what happened as a pastor here. He says, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. So the pastor, the prophet Samuel says, hey, go get me King Agag. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, surely the bitterness and death is past us. It's like, hey, I'm King Agag. Hey, nice to meet you. Hey, I'm glad that we're all good. Everything's good between us. Like, it's really, are we going to have a banquet tonight to kind of celebrate, to commemorate what's been happening around here? But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. 
Chopped them all up, executed him. Now we go back to Esther. Okay, so we look at that story to kind of understand the hatred from Haman to the Jew who wouldn't bow before him. And so all of these people are killed. We see the sons. And then this phrase, they did not lay hands on the plunder. This appears three times in this chapter. It's coming from the silence, but it's powerful when you see it. See, back at 1 Samuel 15, they were to kill everybody and not take any of the plunder. In today's chapter, as the stories unfolded, the Jewish people had every authority to, to kill them all and to take all the plunder. It was very clear that King Ashwaris, it was ruled that, that if, if you come against them, they can destroy you and they can take all your possessions. And I can't help but to, but to see the spirit, I don't know how to word that, the, the, the spiritual like sort of obedience, the, the follow through of what their, what their generations before them failed to do, I see them now doing. That they look at the situation, they're following through, but they're not taking the plunder. I'll never forget my first time to Israel. One of the things I really wanted to do was to go through the Hezekiah Tunnel where there was, it's like a water tunnel that you can walk through. It's cold water. Most people don't want to do it. I still have yet to do it. I want to do it. But we were not allowed to do it the first time because there was a shooting on the other side. Um, IDF killed somebody. There was like, they were wrapping up for a holiday and there were attacks. And, and there was a Jewish man that was a security guard and I had like the best, like a great conversation we were talking. We were like, well, what do you make of the whole situation here? And he's like, you know what? This, the, the issue is the world is trying to solve um, the, the problems that exist here through politics. But the issue is spiritual, that this is a spiritual situation and they're trying to resolve it through politics and it'll never be resolved through politics. It'll only be resolved through our Lord. And I was like, you're a guy making minimum wage at the, at like essentially like at SeaWorld, stopping from people from going on the ride. And the depth of what he said, of understanding the, the spiritual situation, it, it was like that is, that is overwhelming. And to see here, it's not written, but how they're responding, it's almost like that there's this awakening of the people, that they... <clears throat> There's this self-control, there's this restraint. They're just not going hardcore against these people who, who restrain them. I, seeing somebody who's been locked up for many years, who hates the authority, if they were suddenly like broken out free, there's great danger. And so now these Jewish people who have been under captivity, have been held under, like to be able to have this freedom to think of what they by law had the ability to do, yet there's great restraint but they did not lay their hand on the plunder. And so this is sort of the situation. Verses um, 11, speeding up for time here, um, 11 through 15, what's going to happen is we're going to get transported into the citadel. We're going we're gonna to see a conversation that happens between the king and the queen. If, if this was the military or, or today the military, this is what we call a situation report, kind of like, hey, what's going on? Like, tell me what's... This is what I've heard. What's the situation? What do we need to do? Let's kind of get our plan together. And so verse 11, on that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 sons of Haman at the citadel at Susa. 
What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, I, I read this at first glance, and I think, uh-oh, <laughs> Esther's in trouble. <laughs> she went too far back when the king said the whole talk about the signet ring solved the problem. They went a little bit too far. You know, it's always better to ask for forgiveness and not permission. And I think this is kind of what, you know, like this is how my mind reads it. But this is not at all like you keep reading, which I kind of tend to stop at exclamation points. And so I see the exclamation point. But then he says, now what is your petition? It shall even be granted to you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. He said, okay, I see that. Man, 500 people have been killed here. The 10 sons of Haman have been killed. I can't imagine what's going on in the rest of the provinces. What do you need from me? Do you need any other support? Do you need any other resources? What can I do to assist you in this campaign? And in verse 13, then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. And let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. She says, yes, I do have a request. What we need is that edict that we issued, the 24 hours. We need another 24-hour extension. If we can get the 24-hour extension, we can finish the job that we started. And also the 10 sons of Haman that have been executed who are already dead, we want to take their bodies and we want to place them on the gallows, those huge gallows that their dad was hanged upon. Now, you don't have to turn there, but this whole, like, their bodies, so what's going on? If you go, you don't have to. I'm going to go there, but in, in uh, Deuteronomy, or Exodus, Deuteronomy, uh, there's my, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. We read this. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord God gives you as an inheritance. And so I think that like the whole this hanging of their bodies and having them there, there, there's this great to be hung on a tree that there's this God's cursing is upon that person. And I think by hanging the sons up there, it's this message that they are of cursed of God, which fits back with Exodus 17, where God says from generation to generation, I will be at war. And so, so that's the only thing I can make of, of Esther's desire to do this, to place them. Let it be a statement that God's cursing is upon this, this family. We don't know how long they stayed there. The king command, he authorizes it in verse 14. So the king commanded that it should be done. And so an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month Adar and killed 300 men in Susa. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. We see that for the second time. Again, it's, they're showing restraint. They had every authorization to take the plunder, yet they didn't. And the only reason I can come up with that they didn't take the plunder is going back to 1 Samuel 15, that this is doing the job right the second time. God said, don't take the plunder. They're not taking the plunder. Verses 16 through 19, we see sort of a, uh, the timing of everything unfolding. Um, big region. As the campaign begins to go out, essentially there's fighting followed by the fighting. Once they secured everything, it turns into feasting and celebration. But the timing of events, it sort of, they started feasting and celebrating at different times. This section simply 
lets us know how the sort of campaign sort of were wrapping up and shifting from mourning, sadness uh, to joy. It says, now the rest of the Jews who are in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives, to rid themselves of the enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay hands on the plunder third time. This was done on the 13th day of the month of Dar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews in rural areas who live in the royal towns make the 14th day of the month, Adar, a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. So it turned into this new holiday. They said, we're going we're gonna, to, on this day, we're going we're gonna to feast, we're going to celebrate re- rejoicing, feasting, we're going to share food with one another. First potluck, maybe? I don't know. That, but there's this sort of this, this idea of sharing food is a good thing. Now in verses 20 through 20 through 21, Mordecai observes what's happening. He sees the victory. He's going to take what happens and he's turning it into a new holiday. And so we read here in verse 20, then Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews who are in the provinces of King Asherah, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day of the month annually. And I'm going to pause there. So he writes out this edict, and he, we're going to touch this, but notice the word obliging. He's obligating them. Annually, they're going to have this tradition that, that because of what happened, this is what we're going to do. A new feast is instituted. It's the Feast of Purim. We're going to, we'll learn a little bit about that. If you've been asleep for, for the last, I don't know, eight weeks, however long we've been here going through Esther, this would be a good time to wake up. If we had... If we had a test at the conclusion of every book, this would be the point if I was a teacher, I'd say, you might see this again. (laughs) This is sort of the cliff notes. We looked at 2021 verses 22 through 26 and a half. This is sort of the retelling of the whole book of Esther. This This is what happened. So for those of you that weren't here or you were asleep, we'll read this. So, but this is just rehashing the story of what had happened. Thus the Jews undertook what they'd started to do, what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, remember that word? The king of the Amalekites, if I said it right. The adversary of all the Jews had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, that his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the name of Pur, or Pur. So Purim is the plural of Pur. One of the things in Esther and what I think that the celebration of Purim was intended to be is this book where God's name is not mentioned. You see this great atrocity about to happen to the Jewish people through whom God had made many promises. 
And yet through all of these circumstances, situations, in the midst of it all, God coordinates everything masterfully. And I think that the celebration is of, of Purim is, is, is a time of like, regardless of what's going on, God is sovereign. God is greater. We sang that song, my God is greater. I hear it in Italian. I learned that song in Italy. And so this is where I like want to start, you know, like when Andrea comes, I, I want to try to handcuff him like during his message to see if he can still talk. I don't know. I don't think that he can. But so to recognize that regardless of the situation, regardless of the things going around, we worship, we celebrate, we feast because we know that God is working behind the scenes. We know that our God is bigger than whatever situation. And this book, if nothing else, has made me wonder about how Christians handle circumstances, how we handle the news, how we handle politics, how we handle various trials and situations for the Christian who knows God, who is greater and mightier and bigger than anything we know, that when our world falls apart, we should have some sort of peace that Paul says in Philippians that is beyond words because it doesn't make sense that we can rest in him knowing that he's in control. And because he's in control, Regardless of the situation, look what they were supposed to do in verse 22. Feasting, rejoicing, that means joyfulness. Last week I made this huge point that like as Christians, it's okay for us to smile. It's okay for us to, to be happy, to, to enjoy life, to smile. God wants us to rejoice. We're commanded to rejoice always. And send portions of food, that they were to exchange gifts, food with one another. And then there's this last part that I don't know if it was happening, but it's what we see is that they were to give gifts to the poor. And I, I, I've, I didn't come prepared. I mean, I came prepared. I don't want to, you know, I prepared. But I've always understood, like when we, when you look, sort of, and I, this is sort of me to kind of to confirm later. Um, but the Jewish people are very generous people. Like when you look at um, philanthropy, like I think that the percentage of philanthropists have a Jewish background, like that there is a huge generosity amongst the Jewish people. And, and, I, and I have to kind of confirm that because this is, I'm just, this is just Gunnar talking, which I think I heard somebody say that once, you know, but I don't have any facts. You know, so I'm going to get, send, bring on Snopes, people. Bring it on. Like I let, let, confirm whether I'm telling the truth or not. But I do know that God throughout the Bible wants us, those who follow him to be generous, to walk through life with open hands, that our God is not the stuff within our hands. Our God is the one who gives and takes. And so here in the midst of this, that part of Purim is, is, is to give to the poor. Okay, pur is the singular, Purim is plural. That's the casting of the lots, it's this day of all days, back nine months ago or however long it was, when Haman was coming up with this scheme, they were like rolling the dice, rolling the dice, rolling the dice. And it's, ah, on this day, here's the unlucky day. It's going to be really bad for the king. Let's go pitch to the king. The only way that we can resolve the king's bad luck is to kill the Jewish people. And so then when that day came, what happened? Haman and his whole family was killed. This like cuts against everything. Like it points to God's sovereignty that God is over the lots. And there's a proverb that says, Man rolls the dice, but it doesn't say roll the dice. It says draws the, the lot. 
Yeah, casts a lot. That's I'm thinking of rolling dice. Man casts a lot, but God dictates where it falls. And this is what they're celebrating. God's bigger than this whole celebrate this whole situation. So we're going to celebrate. Verse 26. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the name Pur. And because of the instructions of this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom. This is the part I was trying to get to. So I have a few minutes to get to sort of the the crux of the story, the point. I said the word oblige them, obligation, now custom. They established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their, uh, according to their appointed time annually. So here we see this custom, this tradition is formed that they were, they were commanded to say every year you're going to celebrate this, you're going to do this. Around the world, in every synagogue, in every Jewish home, still thousands of years later, when Purim comes, it's a huge celebration. Starts with the, with the reading of Esther in, in one setting. The kids had the groggers, which I ordered. We did this in a church a few years ago, but I had to destroy those groggers because kids are running around the hell with a horrible, horrible sound. I mean, and every time Haman's name is mentioned, they whip those little guys out to drown his name out. They make little cookies, Haman hats, and they're like eating Haman's head. It's a big, like a celebration. And I love this. It says a custom, an obligation for themselves and their descendants, their kids, over and over and over again. And we live in a culture that doesn't like obligation, that we don't like commitment. Like this whole being committed to a church, being committed to, to coming to church on Sundays, being committed to worshiping. I know that when I was a kid, it took a while, but, but I remember being drugged to church and I hated it. And I imagine these Jewish kids being drugged, the tradition over and over again. Why? I think tradition, what do I think of? Tradition. <laughs> you know, I've watched that movie and the plays, I don't even know how many times. I'm embarrassed to admit this. But I only really realized, like, the whole, that the, the title of the movie is actually, like, the message of the movie. Like, the, the fiddler on the roof actually has a meaning dealing with the balancing of life, that a fiddler on the roof is a dangerous place to play an instrument because if you fall off, you'll break your neck. Who knew? Genius. And it's right in the beginning of the movie when Tevye starts out with these words, a fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But our little village of Anatevka, you, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. And now how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition. Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many years. Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. The fact that Israel exists, the fact that the Jewish people still exist today is a miracle. And they have their traditions. And this is a tradition. It's beautiful. When I get around Jewish people, I have a confession. It's the one time I wish I could dance. I see like their ceremonies and they're going around in a circle. Like, 
I want to be able to do that. It's beautiful. If you go to a Jewish wedding, they have so many symbolic things that take place within the wedding. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful, the, the covenant and the picture that happens behind the scenes. But the problem is, is they end up, we end up like doing traditions without knowing why or how it started. Like he says, he said in this, I skipped some parts and what I read from Fiddle on the Roof, which is a great movie or play, whatever. Um, uh, he says, here in Antevica, we have traditions for everything, how to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear our clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear our little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you. I don't know. (laughs) But it's a tradition. (laughs) And and so in this passage, they institute this tradition, this custom. And I haven't counted, I should, but from here until the end, we're going to see over and over again, so that you may remember, so that you may remember, so that you don't forget, so that it doesn't fade from your brains. We do these things so that we pass from one generation to the next. See, I didn't really come. I I mean, I said I was drugged to church, but I I didn't have God really pass to me. It only takes a generation not to pass the truths of God. See, this is what he says. The uh, custom, verse 27, themselves for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with the days according to the regulation, according to the appointed time annually, verse 28. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, and the days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, I'm going to stop there. This whole idea of remembering, remembering, remembering. We do Purim. We celebrate to remember what God did back then, that his word didn't fail. And his word didn't fail then. So when we trust him today, we have assurance that his word won't fail. That we're to remember where you came from. I don't care if you were raised in a Christian home or not. Each one of us, if you're a Christian today, it was because you made the decision to follow after Christ. And for me, when I came to Christ, my life was a mess, an absolute mess, absolute disaster. I go to my buddy's retirement ceremony yesterday, my old SEAL instructor there, and my old buddy that we went through training together at the retirement. And my old SEAL instructor, he's like, yeah, man, I remember when you were, you were sitting there waving people on base. He's like, man, you were such a hoodlum. And I'm like, yeah, that was bad. I got in trouble. That was like, I lost my security clearance. You lose your security clearance as a SEAL, you can't be anywhere near the compound because everything is classified. So where'd they stick me for six months? Can I see your ID, please? Yes. And they're like, you're a guy where to try it, and you're waving people on base. I'm like, yeah, that was really bad. That's where I became a Christian. That was like, that's when my whole world fell apart. And see, now I'm approaching the time in life where I've, I'm getting closer and closer and closer to where I've, I'm like in a few years, it's going to be the point where I've been a pastor longer than I was an adult in the business world as a non-believer. And so it's easy for me to forget where I came from because look, at I tuck in my shirt, I comb my hair, I teach the Bible every week, I'm something really special. I'm a good Christian. I don't swear anymore. I haven't been drunk in a long time. And I like, you know, I got everything together. Hmm. But I need to remember. 
I'm not here because of God. I'm here because of what Christ did for me and his transformation. It's never been about me, and I can never forget where I was, and neither should you, because it's not about us. It's about him. We're saved through, by grace, through faith. None of us. And you say, well, I was raised in a good Christian home. Well, you're like Paul. Welcome to the club. You were a sinner. You were just, a, a, you were just like a well-behaved sinner. You were a religious sinner. I was a pagan sinner. You were a religious sinner. And God saved you from your religion and put you into relationship with him. And God doesn't want us to forget. This is the whole idea of communion, which when we start First Peter next week, Ben and I were talking, I'm like, man, I don't feel like we've had communion in a long time. And I'm like, well, I'm reading through Peter. I'm like, I think we're going to be taking communion a lot during Peter because Peter wants us to remember. And so we're going to remember that communion is we reflect upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Okay, moving on. Chapter 29, verse 29 through 32, big overview. Mordecai sent the letters instituting Purim. Now Queen Esther with Mordecai, they're going to send a duplicate letter of the same thing. That's all this is. Some have suggested because it took two to sort of like, for the witness, so these are like two letters sort of instituting Purim legally. That's what they say. But verse 29, the Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ashuerus, namely the words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. The command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. We have a whole other chapter to do. You guys, when you go home, you can say, man, the pastor covered two whole chapters in church. Can't believe it. It's only three verses. Don't tell them, but we're going to do two whole chapters. This last part is a word that I have a hard time saying. I think it's epitaph. What do they write on your tombstone? Epitaph? Is there a T at the end or a P at the end? H. Epitaph. I know how it's written. How does it sound? Epitaph. There we go. The journalist epitaph. That thing. These last verses are the epitaph for Mordecai. Now listen, this is what the king says about him. Now King Ashwaris laid a tribute on the land of the coastlands of the sea and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Media and Persia? He's referencing a secular historical document, which we don't have today, but at the time of writing, they had this. For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ashuerus and great among the Jews in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Beautiful ending. Beautiful. This guy, Mordecai, rose to power. He was great among the Jews, had favor with all of his many kinsmen. He sought the good of his people, the Jewish people, and not only his Jewish people, but he spoke for the welfare of all of Persia. And the book ends. It's beautiful. And so, like, I need to end because I have a funeral to get to. But when I look at the whole of Esther, what I see in Esther in silence is that God does certain things. 
He speaks powerfully in silence. If we follow the story through, God's not mentioned, but it's evident that he's, he is speaking boldly in his, in his absence. That we see that in this craziness of the story that God is under control. He has everything taken care of. It's a theological term called sovereignty, that he reigns, he rules. And from our perspective, sometimes it doesn't, how can it possibly be? But I guarantee you, God is in control. And through the story, we see his faithfulness, that here he preserves his people through, who, through which so many promises were made, that the Messiah would come through them. And here they were facing the verge of extinction, and yet God spared them, and the Messiah would come. And so because of what we see about God in this story, we can do certain things. We can trust him that regardless of the circumstances that you're facing, the situation that you're under, no matter how bad, no matter how fearful, no matter how threatening it is, you can trust God to get you through it. And as we trust him, we can stand with him. That Queen Esther, as she rose, she put her life in God's hands. She risked even losing her life, but she could do that because God's word was faithful. And I think that through all of this book, if there was any, like one thing that I, like one saying from Esther, it's remember, remember, remember. Remember what God has done. And all through this, the gallows, they just keep appearing. And I can't help but to see the cross. And in Galatians chapter 3, I, I, we have to end with Jesus. And in Galatians chapter 3, sort of dealing with the gallows, don't worry, I'll get there. I'll read it to you guys. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So if we have anything to rejoice about, it's Christ. And Father, we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you, Lord, that your word has been proven over and over and over again. We thank you, Lord, that regardless of what we're going through, we can lean upon you, we can trust you. We thank you for the peace that you give us, which surpasses all understanding. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a joyful people, Lord, knowing you, walking with you. We pray that love would um, just be a part of who we are in all things. I thank you for this wonderful story, and I pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.